What up, guys and girls? It's Bobby. So, just want to take a minute and give you guys an intro to this year, this week's podcast. And this week, I talk a lot about training methodology and programming methodology, and why I program the way I program. I kind of kick it off this week's podcast with some talk about like energy systems and giving you guys some of the physiological background, human and exercise science behind why I program the way I program. So we talk about energy systems, talk about mechanism hypertrophy. And then going into a discussion about my programming style in terms of mesocycle work, uh, the types of mesocycles I program, and then the actual pieces of that program, ranging from strength work to accessory work to metcon work, uh, intervals, monostructural intervals, and then gymnastics work. And then finally, I talk a little bit about active recovery and what we talk about, uh, what we mean when we talk about active recovery. Uh, as far as some things to shout out for this week's episode, first thing that I want to shout out and give a pitch for is the Cronin Scholars Program. We actually extended the program or application cycle out to September 30th and September. We've got two more weeks left in this application cycle, so if you're, in, if you're um, about to start school or getting out of the military or even in school already, apply to the program. Uh, we have some money, and we want to give you guys money to help support you guys in school. So uh, head up on our website, go to cronusfit.org slash cronusscholar, uh, I believe is the website. Uh, but you'll see it when you get to the website. Um, there's a banner that shows to apply for the Cronus Scholar. Uh, the next thing that, that I want to talk about is our sponsor, uh, Paragon Recovery. Uh, use the code Cronus15 for 15% off, and then uh, hit them up directly if you're military first responder. And we talked about plenty of time in the past of how much Paragon, uh, how much their supplements have helped me with my recovery and getting me feeling a lot better. Uh, I'm a full, pro- uh, really full believer in the products. Uh, the owners are really good guys that all they really want to do is help give back to the military and first responder community. And guys that are really dealing with a lot of stress in their everyday lives and helping manage the stress both physiologically and with sleep. So if you're struggling with sleep, if you're struggling with uh, like pain, anxiety, hit them up for some of their products. I love the, the night gains or their sleep supplement. It's like changed the game for me with my sleep. And then uh, their anti-inflammatory supplement, their flame off supplement is a great supplement for helping me feel better, my joints feel a little bit better uh, when I take it. My body just doesn't hurt as much when I'm taking the the flame off. And then for those that aren't in the military, uh, they have a CBD, uh, multiple CBD products. Um, I actually will probably talk about CBD in the future in one of our episodes, uh, but basically uh, if you're in the DOD, you're legally not allowed to take CBD but um so i would avoid it if you're in the dod but if you're not in the dod feel free to take some cbd i think it can help a lot with anxiety and stress and some of the pain uh anti-inflammatory product properties as well uh what else is there oh uh we have another five-star review from jacob dar he goes quote sean and bobby are premier mentors on stewarding profession they really help you bring on the best both fitness and leadership thanks man that's a great that's an awesome review. I'm really glad that uh, you took the time out to write that out for us and really kind of reaffirms for us, for me and Sean, why, we, why we're doing this because we just, at the end of the day, want to help uh, help you guys out by, you know, helping teach you guys some more about fitness and leadership and really kind of helping uh, share our thoughts about this stuff. So if, if you're listening, 
head over to our uh, podcast page and drop a five-star review and leave us a review. Uh, we'll get you, read it out, and get it out to you. Next thing that I want to talk about is the CrossFit Open. The CrossFit Open is coming up. We are about four weeks away. Uh, if you haven't registered, go to games at crossfit.com to register. And then when you do register, throw on the hashtag, hashtag CronusFit uh, so that I, we can track you on the CronusFit leaderboard. Uh, last year, we had, I think, seven guys on the leaderboard. Uh, yours truly took number one. Uh, but if anybody can beat me this year, uh, we'll send you a free shirt. And then for the top five guys on the leaderboard in general, we're going to send free shirts too. So if someone can beat me, they can get two free shirts, but pretty much uh, top five guys on the Cronus Fit leaderboard will get a free shirt regardless. So uh, head over to CrossFit.com, games at CrossFit.com, sign up for the CrossFit Open, and then use and then use hashtag Cronus Fit, or Cronus Fit uh, to get on the Cronus Fit leaderboard so that we can track for this year's Open. All right, I think that kind of covers everything that I had uh, for my pitches and shoutouts. Uh, so without further ado, let's get into this week's episode on programming methodology. What up guys and girls, it's Bobby coming to you guys live from San Antonio, Texas. So today I wanted to take a minute to talk to you guys about programming and uh, how I program, why I program the way I do, and some of the science behind my programming methodologies. Um, since you guys, uh, on one of the last Q&As, you guys always seem to, uh, somebody always asks about like programming style, programming background, uh, so I just want to take some time to talk about like my experiences with programming uh, and then what I program. So just a little bit more info about myself. Um, I got my CrossFit Level 1 certification back in 2009, October of 2009. So I'm coming up on nearly a decade of CrossFit experience. Uh, I got into it at West Point uh, when I was a freshman. Uh, there were some seniors, a uh, group of seniors, uh, when I was a freshman that kind of took me under their wings. Uh, basically, we would go up or we'd wake up at like 5 in the morning and go work out. And then this was my, like my first introduction ever to CrossFit of like five rounds for time of like, you know, like burpees and pull-ups, like power snatches, all like the kind of classical crossfit movements. I really learned about uh, that first year, uh, just under like the tutelage of these uh, firsties or first class cadets, the seniors that I was so lucky to, to get to know and to really kind of take after. Um, so that's where it all started from. And then the year after that, in 2009, uh, West Point actually paid for a CrossFit Level 1, uh, so they brought the Level 1 seminar down to us. They had like uh, Rob Orlando, Miranda Oldroy uh, came down and gave us a Level 1. And it was just, a, I just remember it being so informative, and I learned so much in terms of like energy system development, nutrition, uh, like training methodology and coaching. Uh, so that's kind of formed the basis of my uh, training background. As far as my training back and before that, I started lifting weights when I was like 12 years old uh, when I was going up for high school football. Uh, that first summer before high school, uh, I think my parents knew some other parents that were upperclassmen. 
So they invited me and got me into the weight room at 12 years old. So that's when I first learned, learned how to squat, learn how to deadlift, learn how to power clean, uh, and kind of learn really how to lift weights and how to like condition myself back then. So if, uh, that's how I started in the, uh, getting into lifting weights is when I was at 12 years old going into high school. And then from there, uh, like my junior, senior year time frame, I got, kind of got into, into uh, bodybuilding uh, because there, that was pretty much the only like source of lifting information out there was like the bodybuilding mags that you pick up on like the, your supermarket shelves. They had like the basic plans, like the five by ten, blah blah blah, of all the exercises. So that's like where I kind of grew up. Uh, first lifting for football, which was kind of the basics of like squatting, benching, deadlifting, some power cleans, and like some accessory work. And then in high school, I got more into bodybuilding. And then my freshman year is when I started doing CrossFit. Uh, so it's been it's been a while that I've been inside the weight room. I think I've been so I've been lifting weights since I was twelve years old. So. I'm like 29 now, so it's 17 years of lifting weights. So that's pretty much my entire adult life. I've been spending lifting weights. Uh, so I kind of have a lot of experience and background doing this stuff uh, and have over the years learned a lot of the science and some of the reasons why uh, things work the way that they do. That they do. Um, so uh, I guess we'll get started by talking some of the science behind training. Uh, so the first thing I really want to talk about is uh, energy system development. So within the human body, we have three different energy systems that our body relies on to produce energy to, to fuel our movements. And then they're kind of stratified based on time domains and, um, and intensities or total power output. The first uh, energy system is called the phosphogenic pathway. Uh, this is our ATP slash creatine phosphate uh, pathway. This pathway is based uh, primarily on the molecule ATP or adenosine triphosphate, and it is uh, in our body. It's kind of like the high energy molecule inside our bodies, uh, inside our cells. And basically, ATP is what powers everything. Uh, however, inside our bodies, we only have a limited number of ATPs. And what ATP does uh, it is the cleavage of ATP from the triphosphates, a three phosphate molecule into an ADP, the diphosphate molecule. The cleavage of that phosphate molecule, or that phosphate bond, is what releases a lot of energy and powers a lot of our cells and um, powers a lot of the enzymes and the mechanisms inside our body. So uh, that's their first kind of first line in terms of work. Uh, based on the phosphogenic cycle, it is a very high intensity cycle that lasts for a couple of seconds, between one to five seconds of, of max uh, effort. And in doing so, that kind of uh, de like expounds all the ATP that we have in our body um, and also causes us to go into other uh, metabolic pathways to regenerate this ATP to continue empowering the cycle. So the first cycle includes the ATP and creatine phosphate, which is why uh, when we supplement creatine, it can actually increase our power output by giving us a little bit more of that phosphogenic uh, pathway cycle or a phosphogenic cycle pathway. Uh, sub energy substrate to kind of increase that uh, front end and high intensity uh, power output. So if you imagine the graph uh, with the x-axis being time and the y-axis being like power output or total power generated, the phosphogenic cycle is a very huge peak uh, that peaks up at the highest but then like drops off extremely quickly within the first couple of seconds. 
So this is our like uh, powerlifting movements, our Olympic lifts, our max, pretty much our max effort, uh, um, like max effort exercises that we can only sustain for like one or two reps for like five to ten seconds maximum before we hit failure and then have to go into other other energy systems. So that's the first energy system. It's the phosphogenic cycle. The second energy system is called the glycolytic uh, pathway cycle, or also called the anaerobic pathway, depending on who you ask or who you're asking and who you're talking to. So the glycolytic pathway takes sugar or glucose and splits sugar uh, or glucose into two, three carbon molecules. And glycolysis uh, is the act of splitting the sugar into the two, uh, three carbon molecules, and that generates two ATPs. Um, and then from there, uh, this then feeds into the um, creatine or into the Krebs cycle uh, to generate more ATP from the aerobic cycle. But in terms of anaerobic cycle, this is all done, uh, like the name states, uh, anaerobically, so without oxygen. So as a result, we're able to break down glucose into uh, two, three carbon molecules. So glucose is a six carbon molecule. It's C6H12O6, uh, which is kind of like the the, um, the backbone of all carbohydrates. Uh, basically, it breaks them down in three carbon molecules, and the three carbon molecules then can uh, get converted into pyruvate or lactate, uh, and then ends up going into the um, into the pyruvate, which then goes into the Krebs cycle to generate energy uh, aerobically. So as a result, without oxygen, our body is able to break down sugars and generate some more uh, energy, more ATP to regenerate the phosphogenic energy cycle, to regenerate the phosphates necessary to continue uh, powering movement. So the glycolytic pathway lasts for anywhere up to like two minutes. And this is kind of the pathway that you imagine uh, when you do like a very hard sprint or very hard energy uh, demanding exercise that's kind of short. That's like the burning that you feel because some of the um, the three carbon molecules get converted into lactate uh, based from pyruvate. And that's where we get our lactic acid buildup, which causes kind of the burning or what people think of as the burning sensation in our muscles. So this is why, um, also interesting enough, like why yeast is used to make beers and wine is because uh, bacteria do a lot of anaerobic metabolism. And this is why, uh, this is how they create uh, like alcohol and uh, um, yeast by using the same pathway. But so in humans, we don't have the ability to create alcohol, but in, um, in microbacteria, such as yeast, they're able to take the pyruvate and the lactate and make alcohol from it. So just kind of random fact. So then this cycle is pretty short. It lasts up to about two minutes. It is not as high um, power output as their phosphogenic cycle, but it's still relatively high power output. And it's like a very high, but it drops off around two minutes. The last energy cycle is called the aerobic cycle. And like the name implies, it requires oxygen uh, to utilize. So basically, this is the Krebs cycle uh, that's uh, found inside our mitochondria. Basically, it takes the uh, pyruvate that comes from the glycolysis uh, and then takes it and then converts it through a series of um, metabolic steps uh, to convert, uh, to generate, uh, to generate um, ATP from uh, acetyl-CoA or pyruvate. And I think it's like it generates 
30 ATP per cycle, if I want to say. I can't remember correctly off the top of my head. Uh, but it is a slower metabolic pathway because it requires oxygen. And there are definitely a lot more steps into it. The phosphogenic cycle is literally just one step cleaving that phosphate off of ATP. The glycolytic pathway has includes, I want to say like three steps as they convert uh, glucose into the three carbon molecules to generate ATP. But the aerobic cycle takes uh, like 12 steps, I want to say, to generate 30 ATP molecules. So it takes longer to generate and then um, is less uh, high energy output in terms of it doesn't give you as much energy right off the bat like you would out of the phosphogenic or glycolytic pathway. But the benefit of the aerobic pathway, it's like a fire in that you are able to sustain it with oxygen. So it's able to burn uh, longer uh, than you would with the glycolytic phosphogenic cycle. And the aerobic pathway can be broken down further into the carbohydrates and lipids where the carbohydrates uh, after a certain amount of time kind of burn off and then you're left with lipids to burn. So in terms of the aerobic cycle, your body has about um, about 500, 600 grams of uh, glycogen, which is the storage form of glucose uh, between our muscles and our liver. And after about two or three hours, your body kind of burns through off, burns off all that glycogen and we're left with like no sugar really left in our bodies to burn. And then our body then turns to fats to burn. Of course, we know that fats can burn for hours because we have upwards of 20 pounds of fat in our bodies uh, to burn. Um, but they don't occur in uh, isolation. They occur at the same time. Uh, all these ex all these uh, pathways occur at the same time, but they dominate in their certain time domains. So the first phosphogenic time domain is probably like the f from like one to five seconds. Glycolytic pathway goes from about like five seconds up to about two minutes. And the aerobic pathway goes from pretty much indefinitely, uh, but the carbohydrates kind of peter out around two or three hours, whereas lipids kind of sustain us for longer than that. So that's a quick down and dirty into the energy systems that we have inside our body and how that feeds uh, our movement. Moving on from energy systems, I'm going to take a quick moment to talk about the mechanisms of hypertrophy. So initially back in the day, uh, people thought that hypertrophy was based entirely on testosterone. And the more testosterone you had in your body, the bigger your muscles got. Uh, and you can also, this is kind of based on a lot of the anabolic uh, steroids people took back in like the 80s and 90s. They kind of formed a lot of the uh, sports physiology information that we know these days. But the last couple of years uh, with more uh research being done into like the molecular level and genetic regulation we now know there are a lot more uh, factors that go into building muscle and causing muscle hypertrophy or uh, increasing the size in muscles so if anyone ever took a human physiology class we have a certain number of, of muscle cells and that is our we're, we're we only have like x amount of muscle cells as a result the muscle cells can either get bigger or smaller but we can't gain more muscle cells uh, i think the term is like they are, uh, I can't remember what the, what the term is for the muscle cells, but basically we're given a certain amount of them and they can only get bigger or smaller, but we can't get more of them. And basically we can think of hypertrophy uh, as a consequence of stimuli to the muscles. So because of the certain stimuli, then we get bigger muscles, which is manifested as increasing the proteins in our muscles. Uh, as a result, there are multiple mechanisms that go into increasing the protein uh, 
increasing the protein content of our muscles or the amount of protein uh, protein inside our uh, muscle cells. Uh, so if you think about training, we can split up training stimuli into both mechanical stress and metabolic stress. Uh, so the m- mechanical stress would be like just the act of lifting the weights. With the act of lifting the weights, we actually cause microfiber like damage muscle to our cells, muscle damage to our cells, to our muscle cells. And as a result, this muscle damage then results in uh, stimulating tissue repair. And as a result, when you repair something, it gets bigger and stronger, uh, which like is due to the genetic upregulation of the proteins of cell regeneration. So that's kind of the big, the first big portion of hypertrophy is we have to need to cause mechanical stress to the protein, uh, to the muscle cells. And then with the mechanical stress, we also have um, uh, increasing in hormones, uh, anabolic hormones such as testosterone that also help increase the uh, growth of them, uh, the growth of the muscle cells due to the damage. On the other hand, uh, from uh, mechanical stress, we have metabolic stress. And this is actually very interesting that uh, the metabolic stress might actually have a lot more um, influence into how uh, our muscles get bigger. Uh, with the metabolic stress, so with exercising, we are increasing like on the microenvironment, like at the cellular level, we're increasing a lot of and putting a lot of stress on these cells through various combination of stimuli. So one of the first stimuli is that we're putting these cells in an anaerobic environment. Uh, like I talked about in the energy systems, when we are uh, training our muscle cells for to get bigger, we're putting them in an anaerobic state. And as a result, when we're putting them in an anaerobic state, we put it uh, in that glycolytic state. Uh, and as a result, it increases the acid that's produced by the muscle cells as it's going through glycolysis. So this acid actually ends up damaging our cells further that causes some swelling to our cells and also increases uh, other hormones such as growth hormone and IGF. In addition to the uh, anaerobic environment, we're also creating reactive oxygen species. Uh, So pretty much these uh, electrons, uh, as a process of cellular metabolism and respiration, we create these metabolic byproducts that include reactive, reactive oxygen species. And these ROSs are also very, they're like the name implies reactive and they uh, cause damage to the surrounding structures. So these ROS structures also cause damage to the uh, muscle cells to also increase growth. And then finally, as we uh, are breaking down the energy uh, substrates in our cells, like the ATP or glucose or fats and proteins, we're actually depleting uh, these energy substrates which also causes um, our bodies, as a result from depleting them, we're going to increase the amount of supplies that we have in the future, so that we aren't in this inner, um, this like depleted state. So you put all these factors together, between the mechanical stress of lifting weights causing damage and stimulating testosterone uh, production, and the metabolic stress of creating a microenvironments of lactic acidosis, of reactive oxygen species, and then depleting energy substrates. All these factors come into play to stimulate our muscles to increase the protein synthesis, which then causes hypertrophy, which then causes our entire muscle to get bigger and stronger. So that's kind of the whole uh, really quick down and dirty mechanism of hypertrophy uh, based on both a mechanical stress perspective and from a metabolic stress perspective. 
uh, I took this uh, concept from uh, off Instagram actually from Dr. Eddie Joe. Uh, huge shout out to him. He puts out a lot of really good infographics, and I thought this was a great way of summarizing kind of the uh, role of uh, muscle hypertrophy. So, kind of moving on from these two concepts that uh, of energy system development and hypertrophy, I kind of move on into uh, how I program and my program methodology. So, like I mentioned before, uh, I come from a CrossFit background, so. In my mind, when I program my workouts, I'm programming uh, with one event in mind, and that's the CrossFit Open each year. In the past, um, the CrossFit Open kind of served as the uh, kind of the stratifying event or the singular event for the CrossFit season uh, in the past where you would do the Open, and then from the Open, you go to regionals, and then from regionals, you go to the games. So as a result... Uh, pretty much everyone programmed for the Open in order to maximize their performance in the Open to get to the games. Uh, but nowadays, with sanctionals and the sanctional model, the year is a lot more variable with multiple events that you can go to. But uh, I'm, I'm honestly not really programming to go to the games. I'm kind of just programming with an event in mind. And just coincidentally, uh, I just program for the Open because it's a good benchmark uh, to set. Uh, for the CrossFit season, because that signifies the start of the season now. So if you if we program for the CrossFit or programming generally in general, we need to have like a goal or a end state in mind that we're training towards. Uh, then once we have this established end state or end goal, then we can take back and like go back in time and build our program from there. So each year I sit down like after the open and look at the upcoming year and I break down the year into multiple multiple mesocycles uh, that build up to the next cross open for the next year. So within each year, I do several uh, mesocycles that kind of build up throughout the year. The first cycle, the first mesocycle that I program is typically a hypertrophy slash base building block. Uh, where we're looking at mainly just getting bigger and building like a good base, good, good aerobic base uh, from which we can build upon uh, in the upcoming blocks. And this hypertrophy base building block takes usually about 8 to 16 weeks. The act of muscle hypertrophy takes anywhere between 8 to 16 weeks. So I like to make sure that we're uh, using the full time necessary to get the hypertrophy uh, gains and to get bigger and stronger uh, within that window. Then from the hypertrophy block, we typically go into a strength block, which is 12 to 16 weeks. And in the strength block, uh, we kind of drop the reps a lot and focus more on percentage work to really kind of build up the strength capacity uh, of our muscle cells. Uh, when we talk about strength, we talk about strength being based on kind of two um, two facets. The first facet is muscle, uh, muscle size and hypertrophy. And the second uh, aspect of uh, strength is the neuromuscular adaptation. So with that hypertrophy block, we're pretty much building up the muscle size and increasing the muscle size. However, in order to generate the most strength, you not only have to have the maximum muscle size possible, you also need to be able to activate the muscle size. And this is the neuromuscular uh, demands, neuromuscular adaptation that results from exercise. Um, as we get uh, more accustomed to exercise, we're able to increase the amount of myofibers or muscle fibers that we can recruit uh, neuro neurologically, like with our nerves, to for strength. 
So a lot of times with novices, they aren't neuromuscularly adaptive. It means that they aren't they aren't learned in the fact that they don't know how to activate their muscles to produce strength or produce a movement. That's why they talk about like new begins. When people are just starting out lifting weights, they often get stronger very rapidly because their body is literally learning how to lift. So they're able to activate more and more muscles uh, until they get so they're able to get stronger without actually putting on any size. So you're not, they're not necessarily adapting physiolo- physiologically. They're adapting more so neuro- neurologically rather than physiologically. So in our strength block, we are kind of focusing more on the neuro- uh, neuromuscular adaptations of being able to, um, being able to activate the muscles uh, to a certain degree to get stronger. So that's our strength block. And typically in our strength block, I program it as a linear progressive model where each week you kind of increase the weights a little bit by bit by bit uh, so that you are um, slowly increasing your total strength. It's like uh, adding like five pounds every week. Once you add, if you add five pounds every week, you're going to get stronger regardless. The other model that I sometimes play around with is like a, a wave model based on percentage work where you are kind of waving, doing undulating waves, uh, percentage work where you like increase the weights drop the reps, but they come back down to increase the reps and decrease the weights, et cetera, et cetera. So it almost looks like a wave where you're, you're undulating the, the loads and the reps. Uh, this is interesting, another different way of programming strength. Louis Simmons does like the conjugate method where you do like a maximal effort and then this dynamic effort days. I haven't, I don't really mess around too much with the conjugate method because I think it, um, it's a little too, it takes a lot more time than we necessarily have throughout the day uh, so I focus typically more on a linearly progressive model um, because a linearly progressive model is more so more efficient for an intermediate to advanced uh, lifter but once you're an advanced lifter you got to start using other uh, methods like the conjugate method to get stronger once you're at that elite level uh, so that's kind of the strength block after the strength block I like to program a work capacity block which is about 12 weeks and the work capacity block is pretty much our CrossFit block. Uh, this is when we're gonna. I'm programming like a lot of med cons, uh, a lot of interval work, uh, a lot of like monostructural work to really develop the energy systems and they get better at really doing CrossFit. So this is like getting better at cycling the bar, getting better at gymnastics movements, and combining a lot of the uh, movements that we need to do well in CrossFit and really combining them into workouts to really drive some stimuli and to make sure that. Uh, we're able to move well uh, with CrossFit. And then finally, after the work capacity block of like classical CrossFit uh, and CrossFit Metcons, we, I usually move into our open prep cycle, uh, which is our prep cycle for the CrossFit Open. And this is usually about five to six week block. Where pretty much I just program like classic CrossFit, um, cro- classic CrossFit movements uh, in various time demands to mimic the CrossFit Open. So everybody knows that the CrossFit Open is relatively um, limited in the amount of movements that it can do and the amount of supplies that it uses because uh, the open's meant to be done at any box, anywhere. So in terms of cardio, you're only looking at, like, looking at rowing or double unders as your main cardiovascular movements. And then you have, the, have to have a, any of the barbell movements, a box, some wall balls, and then like the dumbbells are kind of the main things that they can do. So you're never gonna take a run you're never gonna see a swim. You're never gonna see like a salt bike, not because not every box has an assault bike. 
You're not going to see rope climbs. You're not going to see, like, pegboards. You're only going to see kind of, like, the classical movements of, like, CrossFit uh, in the open. So that it's very typically pretty easy to prep for because you're limited to a certain number of movements and then, like, with various rep schemes. Uh, so kind of, like, it's easier to program for the open because you are kind of limited in the amount of things that you can do. So after, so that's like the, my programming methodology for the years and then my basic mesocycles that I program out. As far as pieces that I write, typically uh, I write uh, usually a strength piece, uh, an accessory piece, a metcons, intervals, uh, minor structural work, and then some gymnastics work. And those are kind of like the big six pieces that I kind of alternate between uh, for my programming cycles. For the strength work, this is our basic barbell movement, whether that's a squat, deadlift, or Olympic move, Olympic lifts like a snatch or clean and jerk. And these uh, strength pieces depend on the mesocycle that we're in and the um, the stimulus I'm trying to get. Whether it's hypertrophy, uh, we're looking at sets of like 10 to 15, or strength work, we're looking at like three to five rep sets. So it really depends on the cycle that we're in and kind of the stimulus I'm trying to drive. As far as accessory work goes, this uh, also depends on which cycle that we're in. Uh, so that accessory work is either going to be a, like hypertrophy work, uh, like we do in a hypertrophy cycle. They're all like relatively higher rep exercises uh, to kind of stimulate some more muscle growth. And, uh, but other times of the year, I do some prehab slash rehab work where uh, if we're training pretty hard, we, uh, especially at CrossFit, we we uh, are often like in a in the sagittal plane, so we neglect. So we're basically doing a lot of pushing and pulling. So we're gonna neglect a lot of some of the other movements. Like cross is very push heavy. So if you do crossfit consistently, without doing some accessory work, you end up developing these muscular and uh, muscular imbalances that can lead to injuries down the road. So for accessory work, I like to program a lot of prehab and rehab work. And these are like our band pull-aparts, banded face pulls, eyes wise tees, like single legged, uh, like unilateral, like lunge work or step up, stuff like that to kind of balance out the very uh, repetitive nature of CrossFit. Other than after accessories, I usually throw in some Metcons. And the Metcons are going to be the most variable in terms of how I program. So when I program a Metcon, I usually pick like a theme for the Metcon, whether that's a certain rep scheme, um, rep scheme, like certain, uh, like a movement pattern, uh, like, uh, gymnastics or barbell cycling and, or something like exercise that I want to kind of emphasize on. Um, so with each Metcon, I usually have a certain goal that I want to hit with this Metcon, whether that's like testing your grip, testing your ability to cycle barbells, testing your ability to, to like move loads well, or be able to recover after, um, like a high intensity movement and then do low intensity work. So it really just depends on like what I'm trying to accomplish with that Metcon. And then you can, and then, uh, I've lately have been like leaving notes, uh, talking about what I'm thinking about with the Metcons and like what I want the tennis stimuli to be, uh, for the Metcon that I'm programming. Uh, so that's kind of like my base for Metcons. And that's not, I guess like not very specific because, uh, there is no like singular goal I'm trying to get with Metcons. I'm trying to get like an overall, um, result from the Metcon work. And then when and that's compared with interval work. So with interval work, this is when I'm programming uh, designated rest periods or like an every six minutes 
like every four minute on the minute type workout where you work for X amount of time or X amount of work and then rest the remainder of the time. And then with interval work, I'm trying to test a different stimuli. Typically with interval work, I'm trying to test your ability to maintain like a consistent pacing throughout the sets uh, of the interval, or I'm testing your ability to really send it uh, on each interval and then try and recover in between hand. Uh, they're both two different methods, but typically I like to, to test um, the pacing method uh, because a lot of time in CrossFit, uh, a lot of CrossFit workouts depend on your ability to strategize a workout and know how fast and know how hard you can push for certain pieces. So that's so during interval work, that's kind of where we test our ability to cycle movements and being able to recover from movements and knowing how how long we can maintain a pace for and recover for a certain pace. Uh, so I, that's why I prefer a lot of consistency with our interval work versus full sending it uh, and then like trying to recover and then watching our uh, power output or work capacity decrease over sets. I prefer a consistent set across the board. As far as monostructural work, I personally, and I think the, the way that CrossFit's going now, vinyl structure work is the most important facet of any CrossFit programming. Uh, vinyl structure work, when I talk about vinyl structure work, it's pretty much just cardio. It's a fancy way of saying cardio. And that we're doing uh, like intervals on a rower, ski erg, running intervals, assault bike intervals, whatever have you. Basically, vinyl structure work is just cardio, uh, cardio intervals. Uh, and this depends on um, like time domains uh, and kind of uh, how far and how long I am interested in, in pushing or testing or working on improving that time domain. So throughout the year, uh, I've come to think that monostructural work is definitely like the most important way of getting better at CrossFit. Well, that and being stronger. All the other CrossFit or like being good at CrossFit, you don't necessarily have to do CrossFit to be good at CrossFit. Uh, I think as long as you have a good engine uh, that you can build most efficiently by the monostructural interval work, uh, and then you're being relatively strong that we build on by the strength work, you can become a pretty good CrossFit athlete. Uh, you just have to kind of fill in the gaps in terms of being uh, movement efficiency. And that's why for the sixth thing I program is, is gymnastics work. Uh, and with gymnastics work, I'm just really trying to concentrate on developing like the high skill gymnastics that we see in CrossFit, things like muscle ups, handstand push ups, handstand walking, kind of the very high level skills uh, that people don't often hit uh, or that they need to learn and become more efficient at uh, before they become really good at CrossFit. So those are kind of the six pieces that, that I like to program throughout the year. And that's like a strength piece, accessory piece, metcons, intervals, monostructural work, and then gymnastics. And then kind of the last thing I really want to talk about is the active recovery work that I program that we program every week. So active recovery work is probably one of the more important or just recovery in general is going to be the most important thing that we do for our training. Uh, like we can crush ourselves every day in the gym, but if we aren't able to recover from the training, then what's the point of even training in the first place? So active recovery day is a little bit different from our recovery days itself. Uh, our active recovery days are days that we do something active. And then I usually like to program something like an hour, hour of swimming, of biking, of walking, rucking, or like rowing, or some just kind of low intensity work that just really gets the blood flowing and the body moving. And the goal of our active recovery work, or active recovery days, is to really get some good sleep, uh, get a good diet in, make sure we're eating the right foods. 
stretching, uh, whether that's going to be yoga, uh, Ramwad, or whatever you do to stretch. And then doing some like massage or myofascial release, uh, just to kind of massage the muscles, get them to loosen up a little bit. And then the active recovery work itself, uh, and that's to, to increase the blood flow, kind of flush our bodies uh, and flush our muscles. Uh, the big thing with our muscles uh, is that most muscles go through a venous drainage system, or um, well, actually all, all our muscles go through a venous drainage system. But with the venous drainage system, um, it's a low pressure system. So in order to really move um, the waste products out of our muscles, we need to like pump blood into them in order to pump the bad stuff out. So that's why with active recovery, we do some kind of low intensity work, really just to get the blood flowing and to kind of flush out all the bad uh, metabolic waste products and kind of the waste products that develop and uh, are retained by our muscles after exercise. So that is kind of the quick down and dirty of the active recovery phase of our workout programming. Basically on the active recovery days, we just want you to get some good sleep, get some good food in, uh, and then stretch, recover, and then get some active recovery work in, whether that's biking, swimming, rocking, running, jogging, what have you. The goal is not to necessarily put stress on your body and not get a workout in. It's just really to move and just do some something low intensity and just some movement uh, throughout the day. All right, guys. Uh, I think that kind of ends my podcast for today. Uh, talked a, kind of a lot longer than I thought I was going to talk about. Uh, talked about energy systems, the mechanisms of hypertrophy, my programming methodology, and then within the, my program methodology, the different pieces that I program, and then finally close with the active recovery piece. As always, um, hit us up if you have any other questions or um, have want to clarify anything that I talked about in this podcast. I kind of went over a lot uh, in a really short amount of time, so. Uh, if you have any questions, make sure you hit us up on email, hq at chronosfit, online at www.chronosfit.org, or on Instagram at chronosfit. Uh, as always, guys, really glad to be doing this podcast and sharing some of my thoughts. Uh, hit us up, and I will catch you guys later. Peace.